0: Bill Tillman, the legendary lawman best known for hunting down bad guys in Indian territory, got his start as a teenage buffalo hunter on the Kansas frontier. After that, he spent years patrolling the tough streets of Dodge City with the likes of Wyatt Bat Masterson, and Charlie Bassett, before moving on to Oklahoma, where he did more of the same. Friends with guys like Luke Short and Doc Holliday rubbed shoulders with outlaws like Dave Rudaball and J.J. Webb, Tillman wore many hats throughout his life. Senator, husband, father, scout, rancher, saloon owner, movie producer, actor, and then finally, at the ripe old age of 70, Tillman pinned on a badge yet again to take on the corrupt boomtown of Cromwell, Oklahoma. Maybe. Or maybe not. Join me today as we find out more about the man who, according to Teddy Roosevelt, would charge hell with a bucket the man who bat masterson once said was the best of all of us on this newest don't kill the messenger history is complicated and sometimes our heroes are flawed and probably the last ever episode of the bloody fever podcast william matthew tillman jr was born on july 4th 1854 in fort dodge iowa And how much more American could you possibly get than that? Not only was he born on the 4th of July, but he was born in a damn fort. And the fort had a really cool name, Dodge. Tillman wasn't born at no Fort Prius or Fort Hyundai Elantra or no damn Fort Kia Soul. Hell no, he was born in Fort Dodge on America's birthday. William, or Bill as he was often called, was child number three of a litter of six, born to William M. Tillman Sr. and Amanda Shepard. And the Tillmans were farmers, like most Americans were back in the good old days when we didn't have vaccines or child labor laws or more than two genders. Uh, no, I do find it funny, though, when people talk about the good old days, as if there's any other better time to be alive than right now. I know sometimes things get a little annoying, but we've got it pretty good nowadays. I think when people mean the good old days, they mean when things were simpler and moved at a slower pace, right? Which was definitely how it was when Bill Tillman was a kid. What we don't always consider is how brutally hard it was to be a farmer in the 1850s. And toss in a whole bunch of rightfully angry Native Americans, and you might just have to literally get the hell out of Dodge. Which is exactly what the Tillmans did, leaving Fort Dodge, Iowa for Kansas territory. Only thing was, though, Kansas wasn't the safest place in the world at that time either. These were the bleeding Kansas years. The territory was filling up both with pro-slavery and abolitionist groups, and to say that the two factions just didn't get along would be an understatement. This was around the same time when John Brown did his famous raid on Harper's Ferry, when Americans were becoming more and more divided with each new day that passed, and tensions were running at an all-time high. Especially so there in Kansas. And Lawrence, Kansas, the town that would be absolutely devastated by Confederate guerrillas, wasn't very far at all from where the family ended up settling, which was on a farm just outside of Mount Pleasant in Atchison County, way up there in the northeast corner of Kansas. Now, this Atchison County came into being the same year that Bill was born and would eventually become the eastern terminus for the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, the same company involved in the railroad wars I've spoken of on previous episodes. But when Bill's family arrived in Kansas, it wasn't even a state yet. It was still just a territory, and still very much a part of the frontier. So aside from the abolitionists and the pro-slavery factions just constantly fighting, you also had the very real threat of American Indian raids. And all of this violence would continue up to and during the Civil War. But Bill Tillman didn't participate in the Civil War. Because he was a coward. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh, fact is, he was too young. He would have only been like 11 or so when the war ended. But his father and his older brother Richard did serve. Matter of fact, uh, Richard was only 15 when he went to go fight. The records show that Richard Tillman mustered out of the service in June of 1865 A veteran of war at the age of 18. The good old days. I do wonder, though, if young Bill was jealous watching his brother go off to war. Wishing he were old enough to tag along. Not knowing that in just a few short years, he'd embark on a life that would be chock full of all the action anyone could ever hope for. A life that was possibly inspired by a chance encounter with a tall stranger there in Atchison County. Story goes that the stranger, a buckskin-clad lawman, stopped Bill to inquire as to some wanted men in the area wanted to know if the kid had seen him. He hadn't, but this meeting with the curious stranger certainly left an impression on young Bill. And so did those two big revolvers that the lawman had shoved behind their bright red sash tied around his waist. It was this accidental meeting with the one and only already kind of famous Wild Bill Hickok that inspired Bill Tillman himself to one day pursue a career in law enforcement. Now, maybe that encounter I just described happened, and maybe it didn't. But in the words of Mike Rowe, that's the way I heard it. Matter of fact, much of Bill Tillman's life falls under the that's the way I heard it category. And what better time than now to go ahead and give my usual disclaimer. I know I say this a lot, but it was very hard finding accurate information on Mr. Bill Tillman. Frustratingly hard. So much so that I actually called it quits on this episode twice. So here's my dilemma, y'all. I want to provide accurate, entertaining information in a somewhat timely manner. Meaning I don't want to take too long and only release an episode every two or three months. I don't like going more than two weeks without putting out new content. In an ideal world, I'd love to do a two-hour-long episode every single week. But since this is a one-man operation and I have other duties in life, there is a limit on how much research I can do. And not just a time limit, but a financial one as well. You know, I can't afford to buy two or three books to prepare for every episode. And I certainly don't have time to read everything available on every topic. Like I've said before, I'm not a historian or a documentarian. I have zero degrees. I'm just a guy with a $50 microphone who once googled the phrase, how to make a podcast. So all of that said, I did read what I could of Bill Tillman's life in the time I had without spending a fortune, and tried as best as I could to separate the man from the myth. Some of the sources I used come from the writings of Bat Masterson, a man who knew Bill Tillman very well. Only problem with Bat is, he never let the truth get in the way of a good story, if you know what I mean. As usual, I used articles that I found online at places like True West Magazine, which is always a good source for Old West info. And I will try to link all of the sources I used in this episode's show notes. I also gleamed as much on Bill Tillman as I could from a book titled Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and the Wickedest Town in the American West, written by Tom Clavin. Very interesting book, but it is more aimed at the lives of Wyatt and Bat. There's some info on Tillman, but not a lot. And I'm not sure that all the book's stories on Bill are all that accurate. And then there's the Bill Tillman autobiography that his widow, Zoe Agnes Stratton Tillman, wrote years after his death. Unfortunately, I was not able to find a copy to read before this recording. However, I can half-ass justify this omission by the fact that basically all the experts agree that Zoe tended to leave out any negative facts when it came to Bill's life. I'm going to let y'all in on a dirty little secret when it comes to history. Oftentimes, whoever wrote the first book set the narrative. And then other authors or so-called biographers just repeat these claims without fact-checking them. Billy the Kid is a perfect example of this. Pat Garrett wrote the authentic life of Billy the Kid, or at least his ghostwriter did, shortly after Billy's death. And for years, this was the definitive book on Billy the Kid's life, despite it being full of inaccuracies and just flat-out made-up stuff. But other authors for the next 70 or 80 years would repeat these untruths written in Garrett's book as if they were indisputable facts. Zoe's book on her late husband Bill had the same effect. I started seeing the same themes over and over. Just one article after another talking about how Tillman was one of the most morally upright, law-and-order type lawmen of the Wild West. Incorruptible and straight as an arrow. How he was a Christian gentleman, quiet, kindly, sober, greatly respected, and loved by all. Look, the great thing about Old West history is that it really shows the complexity of the human condition. Once you get past the pomp and legend, you start noticing how the good guys weren't always all that good. The bad guys, some of them at least, weren't always that bad. The one thing both groups had in common was that they were humans, and that they were flawed, just like in real life. And Bill Tillman was no different. So I said all that to say this. The information on Bill's life, especially his time spent in Kansas, was very hard for me to track. Well, stories I could find were often in direct contradiction to other stories of his life, and some of the stuff I read was just blatantly not true. So, for the sake of my sanity and this podcast, I decided that instead of doing a detailed timeline of Tillman's early life, I'd just go ahead and do a quick rundown of events that hopefully are at least semi-accurate. You're going to hear the words probably and possibly a lot on this episode. All right, with all that said, ready? Here we go. Bill Tillman got his start as a buffalo hunter, Probably at a very young age, possibly as early as the age of 17, and possibly under the guidance of his older brother, Richard. And according to Bat Masterson, Bill killed his first man while hunting buffalo. His first four men, actually, if that's to be believed. One day, some Cheyenne warriors ransacked Tillman's hide camp when he was gone, destroying both provisions and hides. The next day, Bill set a trap and seven Cheyenne, possibly the same group from the day before, came in and started rummaging around. Tillman opened fire, and the story goes that once the smoke cleared, four Cheyenne warriors lay dead in the dirt. Is that story true? I don't know, but I kind of doubt it. I read other versions that say he only killed two warriors, and I saw at least one version that says he killed all seven of them. Did Bill Tillman have any run-ins with the Cheyenne while he was hunting buffalo? Probably. I'm certain he did. His own brother Richard was himself supposedly killed by the Cheyenne while hunting buffalo around this same time. And I'm sure there's a kernel of truth to the story about Tillman ambushing them. So, I don't know. Probably he did kill a warrior or two as a young man. If not, he would have most definitely had several close encounters. And at some point, probably after his brother's death, Bill quit the hide business and took to living in Dodge City, Kansas. Or thereabouts. And here's where things get real murky, real quick. This is where none of the dates or events that I could find were really lining up. But I'm gonna try. Between the years of probably 1874-ish to 1886, so like a 12-year period, Bill Tillman worked briefly as a scout for the Army, maybe, and then on and off again as a rancher, Ford County Sheriff's Deputy, Deputy City Marshal, and City Marshal there in Dodge City. He also, during this time period, owned at least two saloons, got married, started a family, got arrested a couple of times, and possibly ran the notoriously deadly, mysterious Dave Mather out of town. While in Dodge City, Bill Tillman earned not only the respect, but also the friendship of other Old West legends like Wyatt Earp, Fat Masterson, and Charlie Bassett. All lawmen themselves there in Dodge. He was friends with Luke Short and Doc Holliday. He knew and had run-ins with guys like Dave Rudaball and the aforementioned Dave Mather. He worked alongside a lawman turned outlaw, John Joshua Webb, who incidentally would one day share a jail cell with Rudaball. Tillman possibly pinned on a badge as early as 1874 at the age of 20. Or it might not have been for a few more years until 1878. So many different versions of this guy's life, it's really hard to tell. He was definitely in Dodge City in 78 when Chief Dole Knife's Cheyenne broke off the reservation and Wyatt Earp organized a group of armed civilians, one of which was Tillman, to guard the town's nervous citizens. And it looks like it was that same year when Bill became a deputy under then-Sheriff Bat Masterson. This was also around the time that Masterson arrested Tillman, not once, but twice. Uh-oh, not getting off to a good start on the whole straight-laced law and order legacy. Uh, the first time Tillman got arrested, it was for being a suspected accomplice to a train robbery. The second time was for stealing a horse. Neither one of these charges stuck, but it does kind of make you wonder. I will note that he never lost his job as a deputy either, despite getting arrested. So maybe the charges just didn't amount to anything. I don't know. At the same time, Tillman also proved his courage by helping protect a prisoner from a group of armed vigilantes. And he rode along with Masterson, Earp, and Bassett when they tracked down and killed the murderer of Dodge City dancehall singer and actress, Dora Hand. As far as Bill's matrimonial situation goes, he did get married in 1877 to a 16-year-old widow by the name of Flora Kendall. Yes, a widow at the age of 16. How's that for the good old days? I mentioned that Tillman also dabbled in ranching. This venture did not end well, thanks to Mother Nature. At some point, a big blizzard struck and killed off most of Bill's herd, effectively putting him out of business. Depending on which sources you believe, this happened in either 1880 or during the Great Blizzard of 1887, or possibly both. A Duck Duck Go search states that the winter of 1880 and 81 is widely considered to be one of the most severe winters ever known in parts of the United States. Famous author Laura Ingalls Wilder even wrote a book about it called The Long Winter. Supposedly, that winter was just blizzard on top of blizzard on top of blizzard. If you listen to the episode I did on Luke Short and the Dodge City War, episode number 33. You may remember me talking briefly about a guy named Cornelius Neal Brown. He's one of the guys pictured in the famous Dodge City Peace Commission photo alongside of Luke Short and Masterson and Earp and Bassett. Brown and Tillman were pretty tight. They hunted buffalo together, they were lawmen together, and at some point, they were in the ranching business together. And it was supposedly this winter of 1880 they killed all but 800 head of their cattle. And then, seven years later, you had the blizzard of 1887. The story goes that Tillman had just resigned from his position as Dodge City Marshal to focus on ranching when this storm hit. Accompanied by high winds and snow drifts of six feet or more, temperatures quickly dropped to 30 below zero. The snow was so blinding that some people got lost just yards away from their own homes, and it's estimated that about 100 people in Kansas alone froze to death during this blizzard. Now, animals can fare far much better than we humans can, but still, those are pretty harsh conditions. So it's no surprise that up to 75% of some herds were decimated. Many ranches and cattle companies went under due to this storm. Bill Tillman's among them. Maybe, like I said, not sure which winter it was that destroyed his herd or if it was both of them. But after the 1887 blizzard and after about a decade as a Dodge City lawman, Bill Tillman would have just been 32 years old. And that about sums up first half of Bill Tillman's life. Like I said, I know I really glossed over a lot of his career there as a lawman in Dodge City. But there's just so much focus on guys like Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson that, I don't know, I guess Bill just simply got overshadowed. He was right there with them, though, walking those same streets, corralling the same drunk cowboys, and holding off the same angry mobs. He may or may not have been part of the so-called Dodge City Peace Commission during the bloodless Dodge City War. I'm positive he was, but once again, very little information on his actions during this time. He was a lawman in Dodge City before the Dodge City War, and he was a lawman in Dodge City after the war and he was friends with all the other guys in the, air quotes, Peace Commission. Speaking of which, there may be pictures floating around featuring Bill Tillman in the famous Dodd City Peace Commission photo. These are fake pictures. Some mental midget thought it'd be cool to Photoshop Bill in for some damn reason that only a virgin could understand. Was Bill Tillman really an accomplice to train robbery and horse theft? Maybe. There are indications that Tillman illegally sold whiskey and guns to Native Americans during his time there in Dodge City. And that he profited by selling horses that were stolen off of Indian land. But like I said, these charges did not stick. Did he really chase Mysterious Dave out of Dodge City? Possibly, but Mather biographers argue that he did not. And one of their most compelling arguments is that Mysterious Dave was actually under indictment at the time he supposedly got ran off. You know, so why would you run off a man who was under indictment and not just lock him up? When did Bill Tillman really become a lawman? What year? How long did he scout for the Army, or did he even scout for the Army at all? Did he really kill those Cheyenne and then go on to kill many, many more Cheyenne over the following years, as Bat Masterson claimed? Did he really resign his position as Dodge City Marshal just to focus on his ranch? Who the hell knows? Not this podcaster! What I do know is that after Tillman quit his job as Marshal, he did still retain a commission as a deputy sheriff for Ford County. And it was in this capacity that he shot a man named Ed Prather on July 4, 1888. Bill's 34th birthday, the United States of America's 112th birthday, and Ed's bye-bye, land of the living day. Now this shooting took place in Farmer City, Kansas, now a ghost town, when Ed made one threat too many thrown in Tillman's general direction. According to a local paper, Mr. Prather became very verbally abusive and threatened to put an end to Bill right then and there. A threat that Bill took very seriously, especially when Ed went for his revolver. Turns out Tillman was faster on the draw, though. Had his revolver pointed straight at Ed's face and ordered him not once, not twice, but three times to take his hand off his gun. Prather did not heed warning number three and ended up with a fresh hole in his forehead. And this was deemed a justifiable killing by a coroner's jury. Several months after this incident, Bill Tillman got himself involved in a little something called the Gray County War. And oh boy, if you think our most recent election here in the States has people riled up, wait till you hear about the Gray County War. Turns out, back in the Dizay, the act of deciding which city or town got to be the county seat was quite the big deal. I'm not going to lie, I had a very hard time defining what a county seat was just off the top of my head. And the city I live in is a county seat, so, you know, I should have been known. So, what does it really mean when a city is the county seat? Most of the time, the county seat is also where the county's government headquarters are located. The courthouse is going to be in the county seat. The sheriff's department headquarters, the county jail, probably the tax office, all located in the county seat. Doesn't seem like a big deal, right? Whoop-de-doo, look at me, I'm a county seat. hur and and Well, back in Bill Tillman's time, it was a big deal. A big enough deal to cause some average everyday townsfolk to take up arms. Not only was it a matter of prestige to say that your city was the county seat, but it also came with certain tax and monetary benefits. At this time in Kansas, once an area had a population of 600 or more, they could form into a county. Whichever community was then selected as the county seat would reap the benefits of a courthouse, new roads, bridges, schools, and longevity. Many a town that was passed over for the county seat has since become a ghost town. In 1887, Garfield County, Kansas was formed, and things got so heated when it came time to elect the county seat that Bill Tillman and 20 other tough men with guns were hired to ride in and keep the peace. The same thing happened shortly thereafter in the newly formed Gray County, but the presence of Tillman and the others just wasn't enough to stop the inevitable violence from erupting. Long story short, the competition between the Gray County towns of Ingalls and Cimarron were so contested and riddled with ballot fraud that it finally had to be settled by the Kansas Supreme Court, who initially ruled on the side of Ingalls. only problem was the county records were now in the defunct courthouse in Cimarron, and they flat out refused to give them up. When asked why, they responded with, nope. Mm Mm-mm. These are my records now, and you can't have them, so nay nay, boo boo stick your head in doo-doo. Or something like that. Uh, Enter in Bill Tillman. He led a deputized posse whose numbers included Jim Masterson, the younger brother of Bat, and Neil Brown, Bill's old buddy from Dodge City. And others. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how many men were in this posse, but it was more than a few. And they were tasked with heading to Cimarron and seizing those court records. Sounds easy enough, right? Well, you sir, or madam underestimate the good people of Cimarron, Kansas. When Tillman rode up and he and his men started loading those documents into a wagon, the town's honest tax-paying citizens started arming up. Didn't take too long before they confronted the lawman and his deputies. And by confront, I do mean move into position and immediately open fire. A bullet struck Bill Tillman in the leg. Uh, Matter of fact, all three men in the wagon with Bill were shot, including the driver who was luckily able to turn the wagon around and get clear of the gunfire. Meanwhile, poor Jim Masterson and the others were stuck inside the courthouse. They started to return fire and actually held off a couple of full-on frontal assaults from the angry citizens. The entire battle, now known as the Battle of Cimarron, lasted six hours, and yes, eventually the townspeople did get the upper hand and were able to capture Tillman's deputies. That Masterson himself ended up having to telegraph Cimarron and say that if they didn't immediately release his brother and the others, and he was going to personally hire a train and come with enough firepower to blow the entire damn town off the map. So they released the men. Incredible as it may seem, only one man died during this whole ridiculous incident. A resident by the name of J.W. English. And the issue was still not resolved. It wasn't for another five or six years before the county seat was finally established. In Cimarron. Uh, Full disclosure, I did read another account that said Tillman wasn't shot and that he just suffered a sprained ankle. Either way, it sounds like a whole lot of trouble over where to put a courthouse. And it's a sign of the times. If people are willing to ambush and attempt to kill a group of deputized men over mere court records, and there ain't no telling what they do... If someone convinced them that, oh, I don't know, an entire global pandemic was faked in order to rig a presidential election and the vaccine for said pandemic was going to sterilize an entire civilization and turn the friggin' frogs gay? Turn the friggin' frogs gay! But that's none of my business. The following year, 1889, the great Oklahoma land rush occurred. And our very own Bill Tillman was right there in the mix trying to get some of that sweet, sweet land that we stole from the Indians. Because good old days. The so-called unassigned lands were a portion of present-day Oklahoma ceded to the United States by the Creek and Seminole tribes following the Civil War. For those of you familiar with Oklahoma, first off, I'm sorry. And second, we're talking about the area of present-day counties of Canadian, Kingfisher, Oklahoma, Logan, Cleveland, and Payne. Basically, this great land rush was first come, first serve. Whoever got to tract the land they wanted to live on and claimed it first got to keep it. At least that's my probably less than perfect understanding of it. So, on April 22nd of 1889, hundreds and hundreds of hopefuls all lined up. And at 12 noon, when a pistol shot marked the start of the race, they all made a frenzied dash to claim their land. There's a movie from 1992 called Far and Away, starring the supreme leader of Scientology, Tom Cruise, and verified Illuminati member, Nicole Kidman, It gives a pretty cool portrayal of this land rush. I couldn't for the life of me tell you what the movie's about, I just happened to remember that one scene, and I looked it up, and yep, sure enough, the clip is on YouTube. Link in this episode's show notes. It's basically what you'd imagine. A whole bunch of people on horseback or in wagons making a mad scramble to get to the prime land first. And all the chaos that ensues in such a debacle. I don't know that Tillman personally took part in this initial first land rush. But I do know that the city of Guthrie, Oklahoma came into being that very day. Instantly gaining a population of 15,000 people. One of whom was Bill Tillman, who put up a commercial building he then rented out to finance his future ranching operations. But not before doing a little bit of housekeeping. Although Bill, as far as I can tell, wasn't any type of official lawman at this time, he and his friend Jim Masterson did take it upon themselves to rid the streets of Guthrie of land squatters. And they did so by dragging logs chained together and hitched to mules on opposite sides of the main street, with Tillman riding up front with a shotgun in his hands. Probably not the most diplomatic way to clear the streets, but I'm sure it got the job done. And if the first half of Bill's life was that of a Kansan, the second half was definitely that of an Oklahoman, or as I like to refer to them, Oklahomos. Ha! I love shitting on Oklahoma. I've never been there. It just seems like such an easy target. Anyway, there was another land rush about five months later that Tillman did participate in reacquired the land for his ranch. Now, aside from the joy I derive from constantly making fun of Oklahoma, the state is brought up on this podcast very often for a good reason. A whole lot of Wild Westing took place in the confines of present-day Oklahoma. It was just a straight-up lawless territory during this great land rush, and it had been for quite some time. There were attempts to clean it up over the years, back when it was just Indian territory, but now that it was approaching statehood and so-called civilized folks were trying to settle the area, law enforcement really ramped up their attempts to rid themselves of the criminal elements. And this is where Bill Tillman comes into play. He was just one of many capable men that became U.S. deputy marshals during this time. Matter of fact, he and two others, Chris Matson and Heck Thomas, would famously become known as the Three Guardsmen for the way they basically just waged a war on banditry there in the territories. And one of their main targets was the Doolin Gang and their so-called Wild Bunch, not to be mistaken with Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch. If you have time, please go back and listen to episode 25 I did on the Outlaw Dynamite Dick Clifton to learn more about this gang's genesis. Here's a quick rundown, though. The Doolin Gang used to be the Dalton Gang, and then they became the Dalton Doolin Gang. But after the Dalton brothers were almost completely wiped out in a disastrous coffee-filled Kansas bank robbery gone wrong back in 1892, they then just became the Doolin Gang. And their leader was a guy named Big Eared Biff Bifferson. Uh, No, that's not true. The Doolin Gang was led by Bill Doolin, a guy who looks exactly like a crazy person. Seriously. There's this one picture of him I found online where he just has these crazy eyes and a weird straight mustache. Very villain-like. Anyway, Bill Tillman, Heck Thomas, and Chris Madsen took to systematically hunting down the members of this gang, with Bill Tillman being the one who initially took down the ringleader, Bill Doolin. Supposedly, Bill had tracked Doolin all the way to Arkansas, where the outlaw was laid up in a Eureka Springs bathhouse. Because even the rankest of outlaws like a nice leisurely bath every now and then. Tillman snuck in and, after a short scuffle, was able to subdue Doolin without a single shot being fired. The next day, over 2,000 people gathered at the Guthrie train station to see our hero return with his famous outlaw prisoner in tow. The glory was short-lived, however, when Doolin escaped from jail a few months later. Still, though, the Doolin gang was slowly being whittled away. Chris Madsen and his posse tracked down and killed the infamous Tulsa Jack Blake. Bitter Creek Newcomb and Charlie Pierce soon followed Tulsa to the afterlife. And then Tillman tracked down outlaw Bill Radler, even gave the guy a chance to surrender, a chance he chose to ignore, which earned him a blast from Tillman's shotgun. wasn't long after that, the Red Buck Waitman was killed, and Dynamite Dick, who I previously covered, hashtag episode 25, was captured. And then finally, the escaped Bill Doolin was gunned down by Heck Thomas and his posse in August of 96. Tillman never did collect the reward money on Bill Doolin, by the way. I guess because Doolin escaped. And that's just sometimes how things be. Once the wild bunch were no longer wild and things started to settle down a little bit, Tillman got into the business of breeding horses. And not just any horses, but thoroughbreds. And this really didn't surprise me very much, seeing as how his good friends Bat Masterson and Luke Short were both really into racing ponies around this same time. Tillman even traveled all the way to Kentucky to pick up a couple of studs, one of which had won the Kentucky Derby. Now, I personally can't imagine going to Kentucky for a stud when all I have to do is look in the mirror to find one. Alright, enough of that. Buying a Kentucky thoroughbred couldn't have been cheap, so I'm thinking Tillman wasn't hurting for money around this time. And he wasn't about to lose no popularity contest either, as was evidenced when he easily won election as sheriff of Lincoln County, Oklahoma in the year 1900. That was Lincoln County, Oklahoma, not New Mexico. So, you know, don't be getting your Lincoln counties mixed up. This was also the same year that Bill's wife, Flora, died of tuberculosis. I haven't really mentioned her much or the kids. Uh, Turns out theirs was not a happy marriage and they were living separately when Flora passed away. For how long? I don't know. They did have at least four children together, though. Uh, Their oldest, Charles Augustus, was 22 years old at the time of his mother's death, and their youngest, Vanya, was only 10. Interesting side note, Bill Tillman would go on to have more children. His last surviving child, Woodrow Wilson Tillman, was alive all the way up to 1981, the same year I was born, passing away at the relatively young age of 68. In other words, if Woodrow Wilson Tillman was alive right now, he'd only be 108 years old. So that got me to looking at how many people are alive right now who are 108 or older. A statistic I couldn't find, but I did find out that, according to a website, oldest.org, the oldest living person in the United States is a 114-year young lady by the name of Hester Ford. She was born on August 15, 1905. So it's theoretically possible that Woodrow Tillman could have still been alive today. And if he were, how crazy would that be? That a guy raised by a man who hunted buffalo and probably fought Cheyenne warriors would still be alive today in the era of smartphones and high-speed internet and space exploration. As it were, Bill Tillman was very much alive and well in 1905 when Miss Hester Ford was born. Hell, Tillman was still alive by the time Hester reached adulthood. I'm telling y'all, this Wild West history that we love talking about wasn't really all that long ago. By the way, the uh, info on oldest.org was several months old, so I'm really hoping Hester is still alive. I know a few months is a long time when you're 114. Do me a favor. If she has since passed away, don't email me and tell me about it. I'd rather just keep on believing that she's alive and kicking and wondering if she has a Facebook. If this is your first time listening to Bloody Beaver Podcast and you were hoping to only get the straight facts about Bill Tillman and nothing more, sorry, I do sometimes go off on tangents. Moving forward, newly widowed Bill Tillman wouldn't remain a bachelor for long. I mean, he sure as hell wasn't getting any younger. Not that he was all that old, but he was 46, so he was getting there. 46 back in the year 1900 is probably like being 66 nowadays. Or maybe not. They probably ate way better than we do nowadays and got more exercise. So I don't know, maybe he was only 46 in Brad Pitt years. Either way, Bill Tillman would remarry three years after Flora's death. At the age of 49 to a 23-year-old recent college graduate by the name of Zoe Agnes Stratton. Immediately following their July 13, 1903 wedding, Bill Tillman was temporarily hospitalized after being nearly high-fived to death by his friends for scoring a chick that was half his age. Boom! Zinger! Coming in hot! Uh, (laughs) I would try to make a sugar daddy joke here, but even though Bill was doing well financially, it doesn't look like this was just a uh, marriage of convenience. By all accounts, the couple enjoyed a happy marriage and Zoe and Bill would go on to have three children together and by the time of Bill's death, they had been married for over 20 years. Still got to imagine it was awkward for Bill's older children, especially his daughter Dorothy who was the same age as Zoe. Imagine having a stepmom the same age as you. You know what, scratch that. Uh, (laughs) I've been told that the stepmom genre on Pornhub is pretty popular. So how about this? If you're a damn pervert, And that actually sounds appealing. Why don't you get your mind out of the gutter and imagine having a stepdad your age? Uh Uh-huh. Not sounding so hot now, is it? Some guy you went to high school just sticking his young boner all up in your mom every night? All I'm saying is it would have been kind of at least a little bit awkward. That's all. Not too long after the wedding, the ever-ambitious Bill Tillman decided to get involved in politics. There's actually a good chance he could have been nominated as U.S. Marshal over all of Oklahoma at this time. But unfortunately for him, he was a member of the wrong political party. Tillman was a Democrat, and during the presidential election of 1904, the Democrats chose Alton Brooks Parker as their nominee for president to run against the Republican, Teddy Roosevelt. And Tillman was part of Parker's Oklahoma delegation. As such, he visited his old friend, Bat Masterson, who by then was living in New York City and working as a writer, and through Masterson, was able to meet then-President Teddy Roosevelt. The thing about Teddy Roosevelt was he loved his Wild West lawmen. You know, guys like Seth Bullock of Deadwood, who did receive a presidential marshal appointment. And I'm willing to bet had Tillman not been of the wrong political party, Roosevelt would have likewise hooked him up with that Oklahoma marshal job, if not some other sweet gig. But you know how politics are. Roosevelt still liked Tillman, though, to the point that Teddy invited Bill to come speak at President Taft's inauguration in 1909. And it was likely these political contacts Tillman was making that helped him easily win an election for state senator that same year. Not too bad for a kid who grew up on a farm and made his bones skin in Buffalo. Following Tillman's stint as a senator, he took a position as chief of police of Oklahoma City. He was 57 years old, and over the course of the next two years, he helped eliminate much of the criminal components plaguing the city. Or at least that's the way I heard it. Turns out things might not have been what they appeared, but we'll get to that soon enough. Lots of changes were happening in the early 20th century. One of which was this newfangled thing that everybody was talking about, called the moving pictures or motion pictures. And Bill Tillman was there for it. He, along with some other ex-lawmen, ended up making a movie called The Passing of the Oklahoma Outlaws. Not only did they produce this film, but they also starred in it, as themselves. It premiered in 1915, and although it was originally the same length as our modern movies, clocking in at 96 minutes, only 13 minutes have survived to present day. And yes, it is on YouTube. I will link to it in the show notes. And it's not as bad as I anticipated, especially the version I watched that had kind of an overdub of more modern Western-style music over it. I watched all of it, and I gotta say it was kind of cool watching Bill Tillman in action. And although it depicts real-life events like him capturing Bill Doolin, it is a highly fictionalized version of said events, much like the official record of Bill's life. So don't watch it thinking that just because Bill Tillman produced it and starred in it, that he made sure it was historically accurate. Even Chris Madsen, Bill's former colleague when it came to taking out the Dueling Gang and co-star in the movie, was quoted as saying, I like Bill, but when he got into the moving picture business, he had to make a record whether it was right or not. And Bill was inclined to be romantic. This wasn't the only movie that Tillman had a hand in producing. He was also previously involved in 1908's The Bank Robbery, which starred not only him, but other Old West legends like Quanah Parker, Heck Thomas, Frank Kenton, and the ex-outlaw Al Jennings. It's interesting to me that Tillman got into acting, because if you look at his pictures, in some of them, he very strongly resembles the actor Anthony Hopkins, which made me wonder if Anthony Hopkins is still alive. He is, don't worry. But then I got to wondering, for reasons God only knows, if Jack Nicholson was still alive. He is as well. Matter of fact, both he and Anthony Hopkins were the same age, 83, having been born in 1937. In 1937, was the same year that Emmett Dalton, the last surviving member of the Dalton-Dueling Gang, who Tillman helped destroy, passed away. Bringing it full circle, people. That's the kind of service you get here, and only here, at Bloody Beaver Productions. (laughs) Okay, Uh, as far as Bill Tillman and the movie and pictures go, there have been a couple of modern-day movies depicting his involvement in the film industry. The most recent one, Bill Tillman and the Outlaws, is pretty new. It was either released in 2019 or 2020. I haven't seen it, but I did watch a few clips, and not going to lie, looks more than a little corny. What's not corny is the 1999 movie You Know My Name, featuring Sam Elliott as Bill Tillman. Definitely not the most accurate movie in the world, but come on. It's got Sam Elliott. That dude was born to play an old West lawman. Also, much like Bill Tillman, I'm pretty sure Sam Elliott's old ass and still lands some 23-year-old chicks. The movie You Know My Name starts off with the filming of Oklahoma Outlaws and then transitions into the remaining years of Bill Tillman's life. Namely, his final job as a lawman, which we are now going to discuss. That's right, nine years after starring in a movie, Bill pinned on a badge once again in 1924 at the age of 70 as a special investigator working out of Cromwell, Oklahoma. Now, Cromwell was like the 1920s version of an old West boomtown. Only to see the gold or silver, they were mining for gold. That Texas tea, homeboy. But make no mistake, Cromwell was every bit as lawless as Deadwood or Tombstone were back in the day. So dangerous, in fact, that many of the oil-filled workers actually slept up on roofs of buildings, and they pulled the ladder up with them so nobody could rob them as they caught a few Zs. And just like Deadwood and the other old boom towns, Cromwell's population exploded seemingly overnight. You had a ton of workers coming in to help drill, and then you had all the other legitimate businesses that catered to them. Restaurants and hotels and stores and stuff like that. And, of course, you also had the illegitimate underworld sorts move in. The pimps and peddlers and gamblers and swindlers and all-around low-life types. What made Cromwell a little different was that in 1924, they were smack dab in the middle of prohibition, meaning that alcohol was technically illegal. Now, as someone who has personally worked on an oil rig in both the blazing heat and the freezing cold, I can attest that it's the type of work that'll make you thirsty. And it's dangerous work. As far as I'm concerned, anyone who just spent a long day or a night working on a rig should be able to have a damn drink to unwind afterwards. And despite those drinks being illegal, they were a in Cromwell. That's the thing with prohibition laws they don't really work and end up doing more harm than good. Take our current war on drugs. It's been going on my entire life, and yet people are still fighting drugs and overdosing on them. According to a very recent article from the CDC, over 80,000 people have died from drug overdoses in the United States over the past year, making 2020 the most dangerous year in the history of the United States as far as drug deaths go. Poor people with addictions get thrown in jail if they're lucky, while the politicians and narcotic suppliers just keep on getting rich. Whenever there's a demand for something, no matter how illegal that something may be, there's always going to be people willing to step in and provide it. These types of situations often lead to violence as various organized crime or underworld groups fight over control of whatever that vice is. And the amount of money involved almost ensures that corruption will take place as government officials and law enforcement personnel are bribed. You know, just to grease the wheels and keep everything working smoothly. Happens all the time, and it was most definitely happening in Cromwell when then-Oklahoma Governor Martin Trapp sent Bill Tillman in to get a handle on things. But Bill wasn't the only lawman with jurisdiction in Cromwell. There was another guy by the name of Wiley Lynn, a Prohibition agent who was also working the area. Now, Wiley was a younger man. He was only 36 in 1924, half the age of Bill Tillman. And he hadn't always been a Prohibition agent. Before taking on that job, the Oklahoma-born Lynn had himself been an oil field worker, And after that, he was a deputy sheriff out of Marshall County. And for whatever reason, Bill and Wiley immediately became rivals. The two men just did not see eye to eye. Now, here's where the worm starts to turn. The conventional story goes that Wiley was a corrupt prohibition agent, and every time Tillman would lock somebody up, Lynn would just end up releasing them. And not only that, but the corrupt Wiley couldn't corrupt the incorruptible Bill Tillman. The old lawman refused any and all bribes. The two clashed, obviously, but things didn't come to a head until the still dark early morning hours of November 1st, 1924. Supposedly Tillman and his deputy were seated inside a Maul Murphy's diner when a drunken Wiley Lynn, accompanied by a prostitute, came screeching up in a car and got out and started shooting his pistol in the air like a damn maniac. Because, you know, he'd be drinking. So our hero Bill Tillman did what he had probably done many times before back in Dodge City, way before Wiley Lynn was ever born. He went to go disarm a drunk and disorderly man, which he was successful in doing, and not by using his gun, by the way. According to whichever account you choose to believe, Tillman was either unarmed at the time, or he was armed and just didn't draw his weapon. A quick side note, Bill Tillman did have cancer at this time. What type, I don't know. But according to some sources, he was dying, and the cancer did cause so much pain that he no longer wore his pistol belt around his waist. Either way, Tillman was a tough old man, and he did subdue Lynn and took the drunk's pistol. Unfortunately for the old lawman, Wiley had a hideaway gun, which he was able to pull, discharging it three times at point-blank range into Bill's stomach and chest. And just like that great Bill Tillman, one of the three guardsmen who tamed Oklahoma, a legend in his own time, lay dead in the streets of Cromwell at the age of 70, killed in the line of duty. Maybe. That's the conventional story. That's the story you'll find all over the World Wide Web if you Google Bill Tillman. That's the story his wife told. That's the story that's been printed in the books. And that's the story that makes it into all the movies, like the one I mentioned earlier starring Sam Elliott. But is that what really happened? Was Bill Tillman the upright lawman that most people think he was, that I always thought he was? Turns out, maybe he wasn't. History is complicated, and sometimes our heroes can be very flawed. Before I go any further, I just want to state that I am not a history revisionist. I don't get some sort of perverse joy out of making all of our historical good guys look bad. That's not my forte. I'd love nothing more than be able to tell you that Bill Tillman was the epitome of righteousness and chivalry. But I don't know that that's the truth. And I'm not going to just sit here and lie to you. Turns out that Bill Tillman was almost certainly on the take there in Cromwell. And the Prohibition agent Wiley Lynn may not have been the boogeyman that history has made him out to be. Matter of fact, there's zero evidence indicating that Wiley was corrupt. The opposite is true, actually. He was shutting down illegal bootleggers and houses left and right and making all sorts of arrests even before Tillman showed up on the scene. Turns out Wiley Lynn was so effective at his job that, according to some, it was starting to hurt the pocketbooks of certain corrupt Oklahoma politicians, possibly the same politicians who sent in Bill Tillman. And it turns out the respectable Bill Tillman not only wasn't above taking a bribe, But those two times when Tillman got arrested as a younger man in Dodge City weren't his only brushes with the law he himself was supposed to be upholding. Remember earlier when I said that Tillman was elected as sheriff of Lincoln County? Well, during his time there, he got arrested numerous times for running whorehouses and gaming rooms. Habits that some say he continued once he got assigned to Cromwell. It's also important to note that the man who killed Tillman, Wiley Lynn, ended up turning himself in almost immediately after the shooting. He was tried for murder, and he was found not guilty. Before researching this episode, I only knew the high points of Tillman's life. Old school lawman from Dodge City turned U.S. Deputy Marshal, and he died at the age of 70, attempted to clean up a corrupt oil town. I had seen the Sam Elliott movie, and I was aware of the Prohibition Agent Lynn and the not guilty verdict. But I just figured it was corruption or maybe jury tampering. Maybe whoever was paying off Wiley Lynn also made sure the jury was rigged so that the corrupt Prohibition Agent could go free. But it turns out the corruption was flowing in the opposite direction, most likely especially when you look at Wiley's side of the story and the evidence that the jury was exposed to during the trial. According to Lynn, Tillman wasn't just sitting inside a Maul Murphy's diner minding his own business when a drunken Wiley started shooting off his pistol like a lunatic. First of all, Maul Murphy's wasn't no diner. It was an illegal dance hall. And Wiley just didn't happen to be there acting all crazy. He was there in his official capacity to raid the place. A raid that Bill Tillman might have been attempting to stop. And unlike the popular narrative, Tillman was armed during the confrontation, and he did draw his weapon. According to witnesses, Tillman grabbed Wiley by the neck, pushed him against the wall, while at the same time shoving his pistol into the Prohibition agent's guts. During this scuffle, once again, according to witnesses, Tillman was overheard threatening to kill Lynn. At some point, Lynn was able to pull his other pistol out, and that's when he shot Bill three times, killing him. In, as he claimed, self-defense. Lynn did flee the scene, But like I said, he almost immediately turned himself in. And the two members of law enforcement who accepted his surrender would later testify that he did not seem intoxicated. During the trial, there was no evidence that Lynn was corrupt or on the take. There was evidence, however, that pointed to Tillman's corruption. Two witnesses provided testimony about Bill shaking them down for protection money. Uh, Others were going to testify, but the prosecution successfully objected. And by the way, what was Bill doing inside of an illegal dance hall slash whorehouse in the middle of the night? Working undercover? I doubt it. He was either there as a customer or as muscle. I'm thinking muscle just due to the way that he went after Wiley. And if you don't believe me, even the judge presiding over the case admitted that Bill was on the take, saying, quote, it does not matter that Bill Tillman was taking graft. That's no excuse for killing the man, end quote. After all this evidence was presented, plus the other witnesses who testified that Bill Tillman had threatened Wiley Lynn's life on previous occasions, and despite the governor of Oklahoma throwing his political weight into the mix, a jury of twelve honest men found Prohibition agent Wiley Lynn not guilty. Bill Tillman's body would lay in state at the Oklahoma Capitol Building and was attended by an honor guard before he was laid to rest in Chandler, Oklahoma. Not too long after his burial, someone, supposedly friends of Tillman, came into Cromwell and torched every single house of ill repute. All the whore houses and gambling halls were burnt to the ground. Once again, Maybe. I always thought that was one of the coolest parts of the story. Just imagine it, a bunch of old ex-lawmen coming into the devil's den and torching the damn place down. Or, you know, it may have just been a normal fire. I highly doubt that very many buildings there in Cromwell were up to code. As for Wiley Lynn, he was never the same after the trial. He was found innocent, but the court of public opinion is a motherfucker. After all, he had just killed a genuine American hero. He ended up losing his job and found it impossible to find more work in law enforcement, and he took the hit in the bottle. Hard. He ended up moving in with his mom, where he continued to drink. One of the people he blamed for his inability to find work and his ruined reputation was an Oklahoma investigator named Crockett Long. Long had been friends with Tillman and made no secret about the fact that he had it in for Lynn. Made damn sure Lynn couldn't get hired and also made sure Wiley got arrested for drunkenness at every available opportunity, or so Wiley thought. Uh, On July 17th, 1932, six years after Bill Tillman's death, Wiley Lynn and Crockett Long finally had it out. Evidently, Lynn was the instigator, pulling out his pistol and coming for Crockett, saying, put him up, you son of a bitch. I'm going to get you sometime, so it might as well be now. Which caused Long to draw his gun, and the two had themselves a good old-fashioned gunfight there inside a corner drugstore in Medill, Oklahoma. A gunfight that would result in the death of both men, as well as an innocent bystander who accidentally stopped a bullet. As far as Bill Tillman's widow Zoe is concerned, she would go on to survive him by 40 years, passing away in 1964 at the age of 83. And like I said earlier, it was her book that heavily influenced how the world remembered Bill Tillman. And I don't blame Zoe. I'm sure she loved her husband. And hell, I hope when I die, someone tells a bunch of lies about me being a good person too. Unfortunately, it's not just Tillman's reputation in Cromwell that's in question, or his possible transgressions as a young man. There's also speculation that his capture of Bill Doolin wasn't as cut and dry as the official version goes. That maybe the two Bills collaborated and Doolin allowed Tillman to capture him if he'd split the reward money with him. And that maybe, just maybe, Doolin's escape from jail was a little bit too easy. At least one newspaper at the time of Doolin's arrest did question these circumstances. I don't know how long Bill Tillman was on the take, and I don't know just how deep the corruption went. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure being on the take and accepting bribes necessarily makes someone a horrible person. It's not like he was out there murdering people or robbing from honest citizens. He was shaking down other criminals. But still, I also believe that certain occupations should be held to a higher standard. It's always a bad look for police officers who ticket people just trying to get to work on time, while they and their colleagues are also accepting bribe money and protecting people engaged in far more serious crimes. And let's say all of this is true, that Bill Tillman had a crooked streak. Does it completely void out all the good things that he did? You know, how many honest people slept well at night back in the old days knowing that Bill Tillman was walking the beat? How many legitimately dangerous and violent bad men did Bill Tillman put a stop to? So maybe he decided at the end of the day that he was going to get paid too. I don't know. I'm not the morality police. I will say this, though. I think a lot of people don't like the idea of Bill Tillman being on the take. They want their good guys to be good and their bad guys dead. Back when I covered Bigfoot Wallace, a legitimate Texas hero, I mentioned how he used to track down escaped slaves, which is kind of a shitty thing to do. Someone wrote to me that they believed Bigfoot was going after those slaves because he was so kind, and that had he not gone after them, someone else would have, and that someone else might have treated the slaves badly. Maybe. Or maybe Bigfoot was just trying to make some money, and he didn't really give a damn about the slaves because he was a human and humans on the frontier in the 1800s simply did not think the same way that we think now they were different people and while i don't believe that we should view historical people through the lens of our modern morality i also don't think we should pretend that the good guys were always perfect or that it's some sort of sacrilege to point out their faults i guess it's human nature you know we want to believe that good always triumphs and we want to have these heroes to look at for inspiration but the truth is we are all of us just flawed human beings And if you put anybody too high up on a pedestal, they're likely to let you down. If you want to take more of a gander at the details surrounding Bill Tillman's last days there in Cromwell, check out a book called Great Murder Trials of the Old West. Author Johnny D. Boggs goes into great detail on Wiley Lynn's trial. Another book definitely worth checking out is called Shoot from the Lips, written by Nancy B. Samuelson. Spoiler alert, she also maintains that Lynn acted out of self-defense and that Bill Tillman wasn't at all who we've been told that he was. I normally don't make it a habit to read Amazon reviews on this podcast, but uh, there was this one I found on Nancy's book regarding Bill Tillman that really puts things in a different light and kind of sums up my thoughts on the whole subject. So I'm going to read a portion of it. The reviewer Wayne Collier writes, quote, There are those who revere a past where Western heroes ride tall. If so, they are forewarned as the author dismantles the celebrated frontier reputations of Chris Madsen, E.D. Nix, and Bill Tillman. Some may feel that the author's unyielding stance is a tacit admission that she is arguing rather than proving her premise, but they would be wrong as this is a well-documented book derived in the main from original sources. Samuelson offers the proposition that the early transgressions of Madison and Tillman in particular were harbingers of their misbehavior in Oklahoma territory. A misspent youth isn't always the predictor of a misspent adulthood, yet the author makes a good case to the contrary. The Guardsmen's early deeds and misdeeds, coupled with names, places, and dates, does complicate Samuelson's narrative. Her task is eased somewhat when the subject's lives converge in Oklahoma Territory, where their primary focus settles on the Oklahoma outlaws. Samuelson illuminates various incidents from that time period and matches legend against fact and myth against truth. Tillman's claim to fame as the most outstanding lawman on the frontier was promoted by Outlaw Days 1926 and Marshal of the Last Frontier, 1949, written by his widow, Zoe Tillman. Frontier myths have a life of their own, and Tillman's was no exception, as they were passed on by succeeding writers who based most of their narratives on Zoe's loving, but sometimes mythic, information. Tillman led a checkered life in Kansas. He served as a lawman, yet had earlier joined with known thieves to steal scores of horses from protected Indian lands. He also sold whiskey and guns to Indians. Tillman hadn't altered his wayward ways decades later as he was arrested six times in Oklahoma for running bawdy houses and consorting with prostitutes, and at least nine times for illegal gambling. His job as sheriff of Lincoln County, Oklahoma, was clouded by minor scandals and issues of impropriety, a consequence of his advanced age and diminished future. Samuelson carefully examines the 1924 shooting death of Tillman in Cromwell, Oklahoma, by Wiley Lynn, a federal prohibition officer. She raises the specter of Special Officer Tillman as a payoff man for the governor and uncovers troubling questions. Why was Tillman in a notorious place late at night sitting with the owner, a known lawbreaker? Was Tillman a protector for the night spot? Was Tillman, who didn't like Wiley, waiting to confront him? Why did Wiley Lynn have a nighttime search warrant for that particular place to be served at that particular time? Was Lynn as corrupt an officer as other writers have portrayed him? The author doesn't provide answers to all these questions, leaving it up to the reader to be the judge. What is clear is that Lynn and Tillman's careers came to an end on that fateful evening in Cromwell. Two men, one young, brash, and destined to die within a few years, the other aged, physically ill, and ensnared by his past. Tillman, the possessor of clay feet, became a legend when he died on that dusty street. These celebrated Oklahoma lawmen may have lacked firmness of character when in positions of power. They may have faltered occasionally when crucial decisions had to be made. However, on most occasions, they acted with assurance and celerity, rarely allowing themselves the burden of doubt. This is an admirable trait in the right place at the right time. According to the author, the right places were few and far between. Some will argue the guardsmen were victims of circumstances that few of us will ever experience, that they shouldn't be judged for their indiscretions precipitated by exigent circumstances and if their hallowed status as myth, should remain untarnished. The author would probably describe those inclined as failing to grasp reality by clinging so fiercely to the past. End quote. And that's about the most thorough review I've ever seen on Amazon. And too bad I can't give this guy a five-star review. So what do y'all think? Was Bill Tillman a hero who died in the line of duty? Was he a good man gone bad? A corrupt cop? Or just a mix of all of the above? After listening to this episode, do you still believe the traditional story? about Tillman's life? If not, does any of this info tarnish his legacy? Email me and let me know, Podcast at gmail.com. I'm curious to hear what y'all have to say. And I guess that's about all I've got on Bill Tillman. I do have a couple of updates. I uh, recently had a guy hit me up with a theory on Tom Horn, who I covered way back on episode 23. This guy Steve referred me to a book called Tom Horn in Life and Legend that presents the theory that Horn's bad case of the yellow fever he contracted while serving in the army may have contributed to his dark turn in life. Basically that the fever caused some mental damage and made Horn even crazier than he already was. Now, full disclosure, it's been a while since I covered Tom Horn, so I did do a Google search just to remind myself of what exactly the yellow fever was. The first definition I found comes from the Urban Dictionary and states, "Quote." One is said to have yellow fever if one finds himself most attracted to Asian or Asian American women. Rightfully so, because they are the most beautiful women on earth, everyone should have yellow fever, end quote. Uh, And that definition was submitted by someone named Asian, A-Z-N, girl, G-R-R-L. Now, I'm no medical doctor, but I'm pretty sure this isn't the same yellow fever that Tom Horn had. And besides... Despite my totally unhealthy obsession in my early 20s over Tia Carrera, Lucy Liu, and that one Asian chick from The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, I turned out totally fine, right? Uh, No, uh, actually, the yellow fever that Steve is referencing was spread via mosquito bites and could cause serious illness, including organ failure and death. Not sure about mental disorders, but still an interesting theory. So, good job, Steve, and thank you for the book recommendation. I'll have to check that out. Also, uh, back on episode 29 that I did on Captain Jonathan R. Davis, I talked a little bit about the workings of black powder revolvers and wondered about the safety aspects of carrying one with all six cylinders loaded. Well, a guy that goes by the wild snapper had this to say on the subject. I own an original 51 Navy and it is safe to load six chambers because there is a pin between the cylinders so you can drop the hammer in between the cylinder and it locks on the pin and it also locks the cylinder making it impossible for the gun to accidentally go off. And that's why a lot of people remained using the cap and ball revolvers after cartridge revolvers came out. You can carry six safely. But today, most people, including me, load only five cylinders because if you shoot a lot with cap and ball revolvers and you switch to cartridge revolvers, habits can get you hurt. Load them all the same way so you don't mess up loading when not paying attention. Also, today you can buy firing replicas on most Captain Ball revolvers from the Walker Dragoons, the Baby Dragoons, the 51 Navies. They're around $300. And they are a lot of fun. They're very accurate to the original revolver. A lot of the parts on the replicas fit on my original 51 Navy. Not all, but most. So thank you, Wild Snapper, if that is your real name. Uh, So that's cool. I guess basically you rest the hammer between the chambers as opposed to on the chamber is what I think he's saying. So yeah, that sounds like it'd be perfectly safe. Carry all six chambers loaded. Also a good idea about staying consistent with your safety protocol, no matter what type of firearm you're handling. I gotta get one of those replicas. All right, y'all. I would like to give some shout outs. Shout out to Joe Wheeler, Jamie M., Eric Simpson, Alphonse Schutz, that Dutch bandit over there, that Cowboy, at his restaurant in Germany, The Ranch House. Shout out to Chad Morrison, Nick Baranzini, a.k.a. That Elk Slayer, Randy Chapman, Joshua T, James Powell, Quentin, Jason Spann, Creatures of Darkness, Dave Campbell, Rob the Artist, George Wood, and everybody else I'm forgetting to mention. And a special shout out to Michael, the host of the Texas History Lessons podcast. Do me a favor, y'all. Please check out this guy's podcast. If you're a fan of Texas history or just history in general, I will link to it in the show notes. Michael recently did an episode titled Confederate Statues, Should They Stay or Should They Go? with a focus on Gainesville, Texas. It's really good. If you do listen to it, I hope you do so with open ears and an open mind. Just like with this episode, things aren't always what they seem. And the history that we were taught in school or that we read on a GeoCities website back in 1999 ain't necessarily the way things actually went down. Michael lays it out really well, and for the most part, I agree with much of what he says. So, check that out. And check out all of his other episodes while you're at it. So far, he's mostly been covering uh, the various tribes native to Texas. Just some really good stuff. Uh, I really like the way this guy thinks. Finally, I hope all of you had a very Merry Christmas. And I hope y'all all have a happy and safe New Year's. Thanks for all the support. Thanks for all the comments and emails. Please keep them coming. If you like what you hear, tell somebody about this podcast. And if you haven't already, please go ahead and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on smash that like and subscribe button. Isn't that what all the hip young YouTubers say? Smash that bitch. And lastly, if you're just here for Bill Tillman, class is dismissed. The rest of this episode, I'm just going to do a sort of a year in review and talk about some possible upcoming changes. So first off, once again, thank you all for listening. Just looking back over the past 12 months, I've done 27 episodes. And I got to interview William Sanderson, who played E.B. Farnham, on the greatest TV show of all time, Deadwood. I'm probably the worst interviewer ever, but it was still fun to talk to the guy. I got a cool new logo. I got a website. Finally hit that 1,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. All thanks to all of you. I've personally undergone some changes to the way I've been living this past year that I hope are starting to be reflected on my most recent episodes. I've also gotten some new equipment and some new know-how that hopefully is improving the audio experience for all of you. As far as I'm concerned, this whole podcast experiment has been a success considering that a successful podcast or any type of successful venture is dependent on what you're expecting to get out of it. I started this podcast to talk about Wild West history. I figured if I was lucky, maybe 20 or 30 people would listen to it. Well, according to my podcast hosting site's analytics, I've gotten over 31,000 unique downloads. Almost 5,000 of those in just the last 30 days. According to YouTube's analytics, I've gotten over 130,000 views on that outlet. Over 14,000 in just the last 28 days. So yeah, my expectations have been exceeded and then some. I'm constantly amazed that anybody would want to hear me talk, and there's even people listening in foreign countries. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. I get messages from people who say they got their co-workers and friends listening. I've got everyone from cops to felons to preachers as listeners. It's crazy. So my mind is blown, and I've got nothing but gratitude. Now, if all that sounds like I'm bragging... Not necessarily. Uh, I don't have any illusions of ever making a living doing this or making any money. But I do want this podcast to be more accessible, search-wise. And I do want more people to be able to find it. As of right now, if I go to google.com and type in Wild West Podcast or Old West Podcast, I don't see Bloody Beaver Podcast popping up on the front page. You know what I do see? Legends of the Old West. Dr. History's Audio Stories of the Old West. The Wild West Podcast. These are all great podcasts. I've listened to them all. They're amazing, full of great information, with great hosts. But do you see sort of a pattern as far as their names go? They're all obviously about the Wild West or the Old West. Nobody sees Dr. History's audio stories of the Old West and thinks to themselves, huh, I wonder what that podcast is about. Bloody Beaver podcast, however? What's that about? Menstruation cycles gone wrong? Also, I think some listeners are under the impression that my name is Bloody Beaver or that that's my weird fake internet persona or something like that. It's not. When I first decided I was going to do a podcast on Old West history, I knew I needed a good name. I had five criteria. It had to be catchy. It had to be kind of silly. It had to be original, at least in the sense that there were no other podcasts with that name. It had to relate to the topic at hand, the Old West. And finally, there had to be an available dot com. I nailed them all, except for the uh, relating to the topic at hand. Now, in my mind, it all made sense. The title Bloody Beaver was just an homage to the Mountain Man era. You know, the fur trappers who came in search of beaver, and in doing so, opened up the West to everybody else. The beginning of what we called the Wild West was 100% because of the beaver trade and those beaver trapping years were some wild, dangerous, bloody years. Hence, Bloody Beaver Podcast. I liked it when I came up with it, and I still like it. But it doesn't tell anyone what the hell the podcast is about. And it sure as hell doesn't do me any favors when it comes to search engine optimization. So because I want this podcast to grow and I want people to be able to find it organically and not just through word of mouth, I'm thinking we're going to do a name change. And I think I have just the name in mind. It still covers all the above bases, but it also tells you what we're about. And I do want this podcast to be one of the top results that pops up when someone searches for Wild West or Old West podcasts. So, that's one of the changes that's coming in the new year. Don't worry, you won't have to subscribe to anything new. Nothing will change on your end other than the name you see and possibly the logo. What will change and will continue to change is the quality. I'm gonna be honest here. When I go back and listen to my older episodes, I am almost crippled with embarrassment. There's very few episodes that I look back on with pride. I'm proud of the one I did on Black Bart, for instance. I put a lot of work into that episode and I think it shows. I'm proud of these little quickie episodes I've been doing lately. But my early stuff, Ah, I feel like I took great topics, Corner Parker, Seth Bullock, Sam Bass, John Coulter, Tom Horn, and just vomited out verbal trash. And that's my podcast legacy for these legendary people. I also don't feel like I properly gave credit to the sources that I used. So I am toying around with the idea of re-recording some of these earlier episodes. In such a way that the material, the presentation, and the information is something that I won't be embarrassed to have out there. For the world to listen to. Because right now as it stands. I am embarrassed. The good news is. I do have fresh information. On almost all of these topics. So it uh, wouldn't just be a regurgitation. Of the old crap. So I don't know. We might have some re-recordings coming. And finally. This podcast has a niche. Or a niche. However you say it. It's a podcast again. About Wild West history. You know. True stories from the wild and woolly west. And also really lame jokes. That's a niche I want to stick with. One that I will stick with. I also feel like this podcast is not only for people who are interested in this particular era of history, but who also don't take themselves too seriously. So the joking around and acting goofy, none of that's going to change. That's who we are, and that's probably part of why you're listening. But there are other topics I want to talk about. Things that have absolutely nothing to do with the Old West. For example, right now, I am cocked, locked, and ready to record what I think would be a very interesting true crime topic. A story that a lot of people are unaware of, one that I've never heard covered on any other podcast, and something that's always fascinated me. Just has nothing to do whatsoever with old West history. And I'm also, right now, ready to record another episode on a conspiracy theory. A conspiracy theory that I think is both really creepy and hilarious. think it'd be a lot of fun. But it also has nothing whatsoever to do with Wild West history. And I don't have time to start a second podcast, so here's what I think I'm going to do. I'm going to scratch two itches with one finger, if you know what I mean. I'm going to go ahead and tickle my own fancy and record both of these episodes, and I'm just going to put them up on my Patreon. I haven't talked about the Patreon for a long time because I haven't been putting any new content on there. You may remember that when I started it, my plan was to put a bonus episode on Patreon every week. And I did for a while. I did an entire series on Kit Carson. It's still there if anybody wants to check it out. But it just got to be too much uh, time-wise. I would find myself putting off this podcast because I was too busy every weekend. You know, sometimes I'm my only night off putting out that bonus episode. But I do still have people reaching out every now and then asking to contribute. I had someone recently ask if they could PayPal me some money and support of the podcast. I appreciate stuff like that, but I would feel icky accepting it. So what I'm going to do is every now and then just record some random, not even about the Wild West episode, and post it on Patreon. It's not going to be every week. It's not going to be every month, but I'm going to do it just for fun and as a way for people who want to support the show uh, can do so. And I won't feel guilty for getting something for nothing. And also, if you are a Patreon member and there's some random topic you want me to do an episode on, hit me up. If we get enough topic suggestions, I'll pick one and start recording. So that will be coming in 2021 as well. And I'll announce it whenever I do those and they are available to be listened to. By the way, since I started Patreon, I have donated 20% of each and every dollar to charity. More than that, actually, and that's something I will continue to do. The most recent charity was something called the Giving Tree, where families that are out of work and maybe don't have enough money to buy their kids' gifts for Christmas could do so. We didn't give much, but at least a couple of kids got presents this Christmas that otherwise wouldn't have, thanks to you guys supporting me on Patreon. Also, one last thing it's a brag, but it's also a big fat thank you. According to my stats, this podcast is more popular than 80% of all other podcasts in existence, which blows my fucking mind. And it wouldn't be possible without all of you who continue to listen and share and support this podcast. So, once again, I know I'm sounding like a pro for record, but thank you all. I truly mean that. All right, y'all. That's all I've got for today. Hope you had a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Flying Spaghetti Monster Day, or whatever you heathens are into. And have a Happy New Year's. And please, Try to refrain from getting into any gunfights with Prohibition agents. I don't care how crooked or not crooked they are. Stay safe. Adios.